I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Consent Convo on The Spin. We continue to talk with our brothers on consent. The Consent Convo is a public conversation campaign on consent. It is an emotional justice project, and throughout November, it is in partnership with Essence. I'm talking with black men about how they learned about consent, from whom, how that learning shaped their relationships to their body, sex, power, men, and women. The program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined by Marlon Peterson. Marlon is a social and criminal justice advocate, a writer, and activist. Post-incarceration, Marlon's work focuses on gun violence prevention, youth development, and police violence. His writing has appeared in The Nation, Gorka, Ebony, The Root, Black Press USA. He's been featured on The Root, Humans of New York, and Grit TV with Laura Flanders. Marlon is a 2015 Ebony Magazine Power 100 honoree, a 2015 Soros Justice Fellow, and an Aspen Ideas Festival Scholar as well as a TED residence. Welcome, welcome, Marlon. Hey, how you doing, Esther? Uh, good to have you with us. Consent. We're asking men to speak out and stand up. Stand up Speaking out and standing up, that is something that you do with your work. You're one of millions of black and brown men who has been incarcerated. And our masculinity models and elements of pop culture, hip-hop culture, glamorize that as a masculinity rites of passage. Toxic masculinity especially makes consent almost a dirty word. Men take, they don't ask. It's aggression, not permission. The Consent Convo is pushing for creating a consent-positive environment. And yet, creating that means finding pleasure, seeing power in permission. So what does consent mean to you? How did you learn about it coming up? What did your 19-year-old self know and learn? Who taught you? What did they teach you? And how did their teaching shape your relationship to yourself, to sex, to your body, to power, to men, to women? What were the notions of masculinity that surrounded you and how did they impact your understanding of consent? What have you had to unlearn to create healthier, loving relationships. And looking back, what would you tell your 15 or your 14-year-old self? Marlon Peterson, let's talk consent. So let's start with your personal journey and what has shaped your understanding. And then we'll talk about consent within the world of your work and the youth that you work with now. So consent, how did you first learn about it? And what did you learn? I don't know if I can think of a time that like, there wasn't a talk to sit down and say, Marlon, this is what consent is. What I didn't know about it, I picked up from, you know, watching TV and, you know, no means no. That was like the, the, the grasp of my understanding of what consent was. A woman said no, then, well, at the time, if a girl said no, then that was it. I didn't think of it anything deeper, anything further than that. And I don't, actually don't know when that happened. It just kind of like picked it up as a teenager at some point. And it definitely didn't happen at home. I don't think, you know, our parents, I grew up in a religious household, so, you know, it was either... There was no sex. <laughs> it was like, there's no sex until marriage. So that even the conversation around consent wasn't something I had. just wasn't expected that I would be having sex at a, um, prior to marriage. So, I mean, so that's my level of understanding of consent. I think that it evolved 
I think, probably into adulthood in terms of that the consent was very nuanced and it went beyond just a woman said no, that was it. It, it was much more deeper than that. And I don't think I got to that point until, you know, I would honestly say until my 30s. And so you talk about growing up in a religious household and within all of our households, we get very specific messages about sex, consent, if not the word, but then what is actually expected or accepted. So what kinds of messages did you get and from whom? And were they gender-led? So in other words, did the messages come from the women of your family or the men of your family? Well, I came from both. And I think, you know, I come from an old-school West Indian household, too. I should say that, Trinidadian. And, you know, they come from a place of, like, defined gender roles. And they also played into religion where, you know, a woman did this. She had this position in the household. The father, the man was the head of the household. You know, he made the rules and he made final decisions. So that's kind of what I understood is like a relationship and understood how adult relationships should work, that a woman had a specific role and she did what she was supposed to do and if she stepped out of it, of that role, she was somehow usurping the power of the man. And that was disrespectful in that sense. And that if a man was not able to assert his, what we understood now, his, you know, what, what we say now is what, but if a man didn't assert his masculinity properly in the household and that he was soft and he wasn't capable of really being a man of a house, and he was less than. And even in that understanding of masculinity in my household, it didn't come across as wrong in any way. It was confirmed when I went to, you know, I was grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, so it was confirmed when I went there. God wanted to be that way. That's the way the world needed to work, and you know, that was my understanding back then. And then that's the way it was at home, so it was confirmed that way. So that was what I understood as what masculinity was about. And definitely one thing that I grew out of, thankfully, was that masculinity was not in any way affiliated, associated with being anything other than heterosexual. So anything other than that was definitely not manly or masculine. One of the things that's come up again and again is so many of us learnt consent around no means no. And it was the idea of what you didn't want and that no was everything. One of the things I'm raising again and again with the consent convo is what about the yes? So when you have said yes, when you said yes to sex to being intimate, what informed that yes? How did your understanding of masculinity shape when you said yes, why you said yes, and to whom you said yes? I don't have that like wonderful story of what the yes was. I lost my virginity at 18 years old. Prior to that, part of what it required me to do, I thought because of my peers, was to lie about having lost it already. As young as like 13, lying about that, I lost my virginity. And when I finally did lose it, or when I finally did say yes, it wasn't even me. I mean, the the way it happened was like a friend called somebody that we both knew and she knew me and she came over and we ended up having sex. And, 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 but it was very sort of quick and very like not intimate and very not engaging. But for me, it was just a matter of like, I did it. It was just like, I just like checked that box. That was the bucket list of things I need to get out the way and I checked that box when it happened. The, the complexity was like what yes was for me. It wasn't a yes towards a person, actually, right? And that's sad to say now, but it wasn't a yes towards a person. It was, a, it was sort of like a yes, so I finally did this thing and happened to be with a hurt with a woman. But it was more about me than it was about any sort of intimacy with the next person. As you got older then, looking, knowing what you know now, when you look back at that moment and that time, what might you have told yourself? What might you have said to the young lady that you had sex with? There's a couple of things. One is that, at the very least, there'd be a conversation. A conversation about us and what we're about to experience. I think that, at the very least. And also, understand, trying to get a sense of, like, what she felt and what she was thinking. There was no conversation about that. And I don't think that's very different from a lot of teenage boys, sadly. But there wasn't any conversation about that. And as an adult now, that, to me, is... I think that's sort of disgusting as a, looking back 20 years. 
how very sort of like disconnected from the humanity of the experience I was able to be at that time. And I even thinking about it five minutes after, right? Uh, at least I think about her five minutes after. So, I mean, it, 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 you know, 20 years later, um, you know, I'm thankful I've been able to mature and grow a lot and been able to learn a lot from a lot of people who've been able to put me, help me uh, hold myself accountable for a lot of things. But at the time as an 18-year-old boy, thinking he was an 18-year-old man, it was a very disconnected experience. As you grew more mature and had different experiences, what have you had to unlearn in order to have healthier encounters where there is connection and, you know, it's interesting because when you actually break down the word consent, its actual definition means, you know, two words, con and scent, and it means feel together. So it's interesting to hear you talk about the idea of what even the other person was feeling and what you were feeling and not having that conversation. So then as you become more mature, what have you had to unlearn in terms of the models of masculinity that you were taught in order to have more engaging, connected sexual experiences? What I have unlearned is, it's not about conquering. And also that experience is about it's about the people in it. It's not about one person. And I've had to unlearn that. You know, that people, women, you know, partners are not check boxes. I mean, that is the experience is a is a two person experience. And I've had to really it, it's it's taking time, I think, particularly because I had a certain gap. So I'm one of you mentioned a million million uh, men, black men particularly spent time in prison, so I went to prison from ages nineteen to thirty. Try to have interaction with women, at least not physically, not any physical interaction with women, women for over 10 years. So, like, I didn't focus. A lot of the unlearning literally sort of happened through reading certain things while I was inside, but primarily also when I was released. And I'm now, in, you know, in the mix and interacting with people again. A lot of the unlearning kind of happened at a rapid pace. And I want to say also that it happened because there were people who I got to meet and who I got to be in community with, really close friends, brothers and sisters, that kind of like showed me different things without having, well, even explicitly telling me certain things. So that unlearning process, I want to say, is actually like, it's actually a lifelong unlearning process. You think that we spend most of our lives learning everything wrong about relationships and masculinity, and then we have to spend the next part of our lives unlearning a lot of that stuff. And we can't unlearn it in a vacuum. Right? We're unlearning this stuff amidst everything around us that tells us that the things that we used to think are okay. And if you're not thinking those sort of things, something's wrong with you. So we have to unlearn it despite all the pressures around us, whether it be from people that are close to us or just society in general. Having recognized that unlearning is more about life than a moment, how does that shape the work you do with the youth that you come into contact with specifically? And one of the things that's been interesting, Darnell Moore talked about this when we interviewed him for the Consent Convo, that consent becomes about more than consenting to sex, but about who is in your space. How do you reimagine intimacy? What does it mean for you in terms of what you want as well as the other person and what they want? And how does that shift and change as we close? You know, I think about losing Virginia at 18, but I was actually raped at 14 at gunpoint. And I sometimes still kind of like subconsciously even block it out at times because of what that experience was like at that time. And, you know, as a boy and at the time, feelings of homophobia and all those sort of things kind of like drowning those sort of, not telling anybody about that experience until maybe about six, seven years later, eight years later, telling anybody about that experience because of how shame I felt from it. And I think, like, in the work that I do now, a couple of things. One is that I'm much more comfortable being more vulnerable and sort of empowering, like, really young boys to be vulnerable about their experiences. And not only experiences with, you know, a romantic partner, but with, like, each other just in general. I think that 
the way masculinity works, when toxic masculinity works, it prevents people from building authentic relationships with anybody because there's this sort of guys that, you know, masculinity means muscle. Um, whether it be muscle in physical form or in sort of like verbal in, in the way we speak to each other. And it inhibits real authentic relationships. But the other sort of side of it in dealing with, you know, some of the work I do around gun violence prevention also, it also, masculinity or toxic notions of it are always at the deceit, always at the core why so many of these like street level conflicts happen because folks are not able to deal with hurt and pain and vulnerability in ways that are not societally acceptable. And that's what, so me being able to like draw from past experiences, whether it be with the, you know, 18 in Virginia or speaking about, the, you know, the, the sexual assault at 14 and growing from those spaces and being able to relate lessons learned from those experiences to younger folks in a very candid and tactful way. For me, that is the work, right? Whether it be working directly in issues of sexual violence or the intersections of different sorts of violence, whether it be sexual violence, domestic violence, gun violence, other forms of community violence, like, Toxic masculinity that can be performed by men and women is at the core of why we have so many of these problems. And so closing question, you spoke about two things. You said when I first asked you about your first sexual encounters, you talked about losing your virginity at 18, but that you were raped at gunpoint at 14. And that part of there's almost a blocking out because of the shame. I think one of the challenging things because of being a, a sexual assault survivor is how do you then unlearn the shame and allow for yourself to have an experience of pleasure and sex as opposed to reliving the shame in different forms. And of course, there's the additional silencing and the way in which we deal with notions of homophobia. And so the assumptions about what that means if the person who assaulted you was a man, what kind of unlearning have you had to do there just as we close? I'm still going through it, right? The way I first told anybody about that, I was already you know, a couple of years into a prison sentence, and I told my father, who would come visit me every week, that, hey, I'm going to pass you a note when you come visit me, and I don't want you to ask me any questions about it. I don't have to say anything to anybody. I just need somebody else to know that this happened. And, you know, I passed him the note, and he complied. He never said anything about it. I just needed somebody to know, but I don't want anybody to give me any feedback on it. And the first time, honestly, I ever was able to say anything about this publicly was a couple of years ago, I spoke at a graduation for some young people who had been involved with the juvenile justice system, and I spoke at a graduation, and it just came out. And that was sort of like the, pro- the beginning of the process of like of the healing of it, uh, or even acknowledging that that happened, because I do tend to try to block it out as if it didn't happen. It's an ongoing process, right? I think what allows me to grow from that experience and to, like, as I said, have lessons learned from it is actually being able to share with other folks. I feel like that experience, one of the purposes of that experience, if I can say if there's any purpose of an experience like that, is that I have this experience that I can share with other people. And people can, like, sort of give them a level of agency to be able to begin speaking about those experiences also. Because ultimately, once again, I don't know what that person was dealing with, but I do know that I often say that I was a 14-year-old boy thinking I was a 14-year-old man, and I should not let that happen. And that the shame of me thinking I was... I was strong enough not to let that happen at that time. And the shame associated with homophobia, thinking that, well, if I tell people this, they're going to think I'm gay, and then all this stuff that comes along with that, those sort of things would drown the experience and sort of let, let that team bubble even more. And I think, like, being able to now share this with other folks, young folks, men and women, boys and girls, helps them deal and come out of those that same bubble of shame that they may be dealing with. I mean, that's the purpose of that experience to me, if I can take any positives out of it, and, and, and I'm continuing to grow from it, right? As I said, it's only been maybe 60 years or so since I've been able to even speak about this in public.
Well, we're grateful that you continue to share and speak out and inspire and empower as you walk. I'm Arlen Peterson. You're listening to the Consent Convo. Consent is swag. Consent is smart. And smart is sexy. Yes, it is. Thank you, Marlon Peterson. Thank you, Esther. The Consent Convo is an emotional justice project. It's a public conversation campaign on consent. And in November, it is in partnership with Essence. We are having it with men and women. And it's a call to create a consent positive environment to speak out, to stand up. Stand up. Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes and check out Essence every Thursday for The Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent. I'm your host, Esther Armand. We about to drop, we about to drop, yeah. I got moxie, I'm so damn foxy. Industry try to block me like cops and paparazzi. Those that don't copy, just copy properly. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.